You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Do drug abusers' brains look different because of drug use? Or do they use drugs because their brains are different to begin with? Recent advances in brain imaging have revolutionized our understanding of addictive disorders. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host. And with me today is Dr. Stephen Dewey, Senior Scientist at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Dr. Dewey also holds faculty appointments at SUNY Stony Brook and NYU's School of Medicine. He has published extensively on the neurobiology of addiction. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Dewey. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Dr. Dewey, what has neuroimaging taught us about addiction and about the brain? It's actually taught us many things. If I were to make some kind of global statement, I would say that it's taught us that in the brain of addicted subjects, there's been an enormous amount of change in neurochemistry. That is, the, the chemicals in our brain that allow different parts of the brain to communicate with one another change considerably. They change not only in their concentration, but they change in their distribution. And we see what appear to be some permanent changes in receptors. These are the molecules that neurochemicals attach themselves to to send their signals. So if I were going to make a kind of a global statement, I would say that the changes we see are neurochemical and receptor-based. And some of them appear to be permanent. Now, does it matter what kind of scan you use? Are you talking PET scans or SPEC scans, MRI? It becomes kind of an alphabet soup of scans here. Right, absolutely. In fact, we're talking specifically about PET scanning. One of the unique features of PET scanning, unlike CT and MRI, is that PET scanning allows us to see brain function as opposed to brain anatomy. And because you can see brain function, actually look at the neurochemicals, look at neurotransmitters, look at receptors. It's a very unique technique and a very powerful one because if you imagine diseases like addiction, schizophrenia, any kind of mental disorder result from changes in brain chemistry, changes in brain function, far more than they do in changes in brain brain anatomy. So we are talking specifically in this case about PET scanning. So with PET scanning, you can actually dial down to the level of a receptor? Absolutely. You can not only dial down to the level of a receptor, but you can look at the concentrations of a neurotransmitter that are binding to that receptor. And you can do it in real time in awake human subjects. I would think this is still sort of a research kind of uh, method that we don't do this in clinical practice yet, correct? In fact, it, it has been approved for clinical use. The first PET scanner was actually built in 1960 here at Brookhaven National Laboratory. But over the last five years, PET scanning has become an FDA-approved technique. It's used primarily in the oncology services, where it is very powerful for diagnosing different types of cancer and for following treatment regimes and how they're working on cancers. With respect to the CNS, it is approved for CNS work, again looking for brain cancer, and for looking at things like epileptic foci, parts of the brain that are, that are experiencing abnormal activity, PET scan is very powerful for finding that because, again, as we know, an epileptic center is not necessarily one that is anatomically changed, but in fact is one that is neurochemically changed. So PET scanning has been extremely helpful in the area of epilepsy. Now, back to addiction for a moment. Of course, we've all learned that dopamine is sort of the the power neurotransmitter in addictive disorders. Uh, What have we learned about dopamine given the neuroimaging work that you've done? We've learned quite a bit. 
In fact, if I were to single out any single neurotransmitter that we've learned the most about, it's certainly been dopamine with respect to addiction. And what we've learned that, uh, without exception, every drug that is addictive, that is, every drug that is readily self-administered, not only by animals but by humans, work by increasing brain dopamine concentrations. And just to give you a sense of what that means, if somebody were to take methamphetamine, dopamine levels might increase five or 10,000-fold over what their normal levels would be. And furthermore, we've learned that the degree to which a drug increases brain dopamine tells us something about its addictive liability. Or stated quite simply, a drug that raises brain dopamine will do so in a very unique pattern, and the magnitude to which it does it tells us how addictive a drug is. So methamphetamine might raise dopamine levels 10,000%, whereas a drug like THC or marijuana will increase brain dopamine levels 100%. And we know that methamphetamine is far more addictive than marijuana. How about chocolate? Actually, that's a very good question. We also have completed studies looking at obesity. And we've taken obese patients and shown them food, in fact, shown them their favorite food. And lo and behold, we see the same exact changes in brain dopamine in an obese subject that we see in a substance abuser when we show the substance abuser those things associated with taking the drug. So studies that we have done, for example, we show obese subjects chocolate, those who really like chocolate, and we see a marked increase in brain dopamine. We take a cocaine or methamphetamine addict and we show him a videotape or just a white powder and we get a big increase in brain dopamine. So there's clearly a final common path associated with addiction, whether that addiction is to a, an illicit drug or it's to eating. Huh. So uh, chocolate is addictive for some people. Uh, in some people, absolutely. In fact, we hear about it all the time. We hear about chocoholics. We hear, and not only do we hear, but we actually see objectively neurochemical changes that are consistent with the changes we see in, you know, classic substance abusers. Out of all the drugs that you've studied, is methamphetamine associated with the highest increase in dopamine? Yes. We have studied virtually every addictive drug that's out there, and without exception, and by a large margin, methamphetamine produces the greatest increase in brain dopamine of any drug that we have studied. And what about cigarettes, nicotine? Where does that fall? Nicotine will increase brain dopamine levels between 100 and 200 percent above baseline. And again, we put that in perspective to a drug like cocaine, which might increase it 1,000 to 2,000 percent, 3,000 percent. Of course, this is all dose dependent. And a drug like meth, which may be between 5 and 10,000. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is neuroscientist Dr. Stephen Dewey. Okay, so, so this dopamine surge that we see with addictive compounds, are there areas of the brain where this surge is localized? Yes, absolutely. There's a small area of the brain, bilateral area, that means it occurs on both sides, called the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens is a very dopamine-rich nucleus in the brain. It's actually part of the corpus striatum, that, those large brain structures that are beneath our cortex. And the changes that we see or the increases that we see in brain dopamine are, for the most part, located to the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens receives these large dopamine projections from the brainstem. If we think about a disease like Parkinson's disease, where we actually lose 
dopamine neurons. We lose them in the brain stem in a structure called the substantia nigra. All those neurons in the substantia nigra, those dopamine-containing neurons, they project to the nucleus accumbens. So the changes that we see in substance abuse are limited primarily to the nucleus accumbens. From what I understand, the nucleus accumbens, though, has very important origins from an evolutionary standpoint. That's correct. If we actually go back and look at the nucleus accumbens from an evolutionary point of view, what we see is that in lower chordates or, or lower animals, the nucleus accumbens is actually bigger. If you consider, for example, the frog, the frog is an amphibian has doesn't have a whole lot of cortex, has, but has, in fact, mostly the corpus striatum. And it's got some brain structures associated with vision, the superior and inferior colliculi, which are vision and hearing. Uh, they're much more pronounced. But as we look back evolutionarily, the, the nucleus accumbens is present in virtually every species that you go back and look at. And it plays an important role in reward. If you imagine the drive for food and water is not only one that is life-sustaining, but is one associated with reward. So if you take away the reward centers, you actually take away, in many cases, you take away people's ability or animals' ability to find satisfaction through food. So it plays an important role in sustaining life. We have to understand that in many instances, the, the, the mechanisms involved in sustaining life are rewarding. You have to imagine that the nucleus accumbens plays a, almost a life-sustaining role in our brains and in the brains of all animals. So I presume reproduction is somehow tied in there as well? Actually, it is. If you look at PET scans that have been done, looking at, at specifically the questions of reproduction, you see a lot of activity in the nucleus accumbens. You also tend to see more cortical activity in humans as well. So the drive for sexual behavior is also incorporated in the nucleus accumbens. It also tends to be in humans spread out in the cortex as well. But the nucleus accumbens is clearly an important center in the brain. In fact, if you put stimulating electrodes into the nucleus accumbens in animals, they will self-administer electrical shock into the nucleus accumbens. Now back to neuroimaging, what areas of research are, are hot right now for you? For us, there are actually several. We're very, very interested in studying Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease, as we know, is, is cognitive loss. And again, just like any other CNS disease, uh, it represents a change in brain chemistry before it represents a change in brain function. So we've been using PET scanning to look at Alzheimer's disease in patients who are asymptomatic, who may have a family history. We're also interested in a lot of the mental illnesses, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Again, diseases characterized by changes in brain dopamine and not changes in brain anatomy. We're also interested, obviously, in addiction. We do kind of a large amount of work in addiction. And we're interested in learning and memory. So we're now doing some studies in animals that have been trained to perform certain tasks, trying to understand the neurochemistry of learning and memory, and doing the same things in humans, having humans do math questions or recall tasks, and looking again at how the brain maps learning and memory. With all this added attention on neurotransmitter and reception function, does it mean that we might have better treatments for these very difficult problems in the future? Absolutely. If we can define the neurochemistry involved in these diseases, then we absolutely can make or develop new pharmacotherapies targeted specifically at these diseases. I think one of the classic examples has been in schizophrenia, where the standard of care, when I was in medical school, the standard of care was to just give these neuroleptic drugs, 
drugs that block D2, dopamine D2 receptors. What we've learned from medical imaging is in, that is, in fact, that the disease of schizophrenia is one characterized by increases in dopamine receptors, but, but not just dopamine receptors, other receptors as well. And this has led to remarkable changes in the way we treat schizophrenia. We now are kind of getting away from these dopamine-selective drugs and are getting to drugs that we, the pharmacologists call dirty, in that they bind to multiple receptors. So we're now looking at advances in atypical neuroleptics like clozapine or risperidol. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Stephen Dewey. We have been discussing the role of brain imaging in addiction and other CNS research. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.